Okay, we're going to get started. Uh, we don't have Keith here today. Keith's at the NCE, and so we're already late because uh, Keith's not here. <laughs> um, Lainey says, I have to tell you, the code is 8V4T if you would like to get credit for, for Grand Rounds today. Um, so today I'm going to introduce our speaker uh, because uh, he happens to be a friend of mine um, and, uh, and because uh, you know that um, I hate um, the traditional CV reading um, as a speaker introduction. Um, um, I, I crafted a, a lovely speech uh, about Eric. Uh, no, not really. Not really. <laughs> um, actually, last night, um, my 10-year-old, my youngest, came to me and he said, he, he walked into a dark room and he said, wow, I have night vision. And uh, I don't know if you guys noticed how big the moon was last night. It, it was awesome. It was gorgeous. And uh, I was like, well, honey, that's not exactly night vision. Uh, <laughs> but the moon was so bright. So what, what, my story about Eric is that um, I recognized early that, um, that he was a very bright young man. Um, but that may not be a, a comment on how smart I am, but rather how, just how bright Eric is. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, um, I don't have night vision, but I happen to know Eric Young. Uh, and uh, I happened to, um, to meet him when he was a chief resident um, at Dell Children's. And, um, and then he has since gone on to do a fellowship um, at Intermountain and has become um, rapidly, you know, um, a very uh, important voice in the interest in uh, um, uh, overuse and, and waste in our healthcare system. So um, that is all I'm going to say about Eric, um, except that he's an exceptionally polite young man as well. <laughs> so please welcome Eric Kuhn. Can you guys hear me okay in the back? Is this on? Uh, I, I, did you hit the button? There's a button down there. I did. On here? Yeah. The top. I think it's on, right? Yeah. Okay, you guys talk more. Let's see. You guys talk louder. Is this even? It's, it's on. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, thank you, Sean, for that introduction and um, the opportunity to be here today. Uh, I do, it's truly an honor to be here. I do want to say that it's a little bit intimidating to be discussing overdiagnosis at Dartmouth, given that this is the overdiagnosis epicenter and uh, home to pioneers like Gil Welch, uh, Lisa Schwartz, and Steve Woloshin. But I'm going to do my best, uh, best shot here. I have no conflicts to disclose. I'd like to start off by acknowledging some of my collaborators. Alan Schroeder was here for Grand Rounds a few weeks ago, Ricardo Quinones, Virginia Moyer, all have been instrumental in our early uh, evaluation of possible pediatric overdiagnosis. To give you an idea of where we're headed, we'll start by discussing the definition of overdiagnosis, which is not as straightforward as many might think, uh, illustrate how overdiagnosis can be measured, hypothesize some pediatric examples, identify drivers and harms, and uh, talk about how we might mitigate this problem. And I do want to leave a lot of time at the end for discussion to get your questions, critiques, uh, and any reflections that you might have. Overdiagnosis has a very precise definition, but it's often misused even in the medical literature. This definition comes from a recent BMJ article. It's the accurate detection of an abnormality from which a patient does not receive net benefit. And both of those bolded components have to be true. The diagnosis is correct, but the patient doesn't receive net benefit. Of note, this particular definition represents a uh, deviation from how overdiagnosis has been historically defined, 
requiring that um, patients don't receive any benefit whatsoever. Here we're saying that um, when comparing comprehensive benefits to comprehensive harms, there's no net benefit. Additionally, the a lack of symptoms at the time of diagnosis was a classic component of overdiagnosis, but some have questioned that requirement. And um, the, the absence of symptoms does not, or, the absence of symptoms certainly increases the risk of overdiagnosis, but it doesn't preclude patients from receiving more harm than benefit from a diagnosis. So some of the examples that I'm going to discuss today will involve symptomatic patients, and this can probably be one of our discussion points at the end if you also choose. <laughs> to get the juices flowing this morning, I would like each of you to think about whether or not the forthcoming five vignettes are an example of overdiagnosis using the definition that we just talked about. First vignette, a five-year-old girl with a history of asthma is following up in your office after being seen the day before by a colleague. She was treated with steroids, bronchodilators, and amoxicillin. You believe her chest x-ray is more consistent with atelectasis, discontinue antibiotic therapy, and she does well with treatment of her asthma. So by a raise of hands, how many think that this young girl has been overdiagnosed potentially? By the colleague or by, by the second? By the colleague. Yes, good question. Anyone? A few people, okay. So I would suggest that this is best described as misdiagnosis. Um, your colleague has diagnosed asthmonia, both asthma and pneumonia, but if your read of the chest x-ray is correct, the patient didn't really have pneumonia. The underlying diagnosis was not correct, and so it doesn't really meet our definition. Second uh, example, a previously healthy four-year-old boy with uncomplicated MSSA osteomyelitis of his right femur is discharged from the hospital with a PICC line and then anticipated four-plus weeks of IV antibiotic therapy. Has this particular patient been overdiagnosed? <laughs> exactly. So I would call this overtreatment. There's pretty good evidence that early conversion to oral antibiotic therapy for routine osteomyelitis is both safe and effective. He's, you know, four, four weeks is probably excessive treatment. Um, he did have a correct diagnosis, but he's probably benefiting from detection and treatment of that condition. Therefore, it's not really over-diagnosis, but more over-treatment. A convalescing five-month-old girl with bronchiolitis on continuous pulse oximetry desaturates for a brief period overnight to 88% and is placed on supplemental oxygen by nasal cannula. How many think that this is an example of overdiagnosis? Okay, a few people. So I would suggest that this is a possible example of overdiagnosis of hypoxemia in this case. The patient really did have an oxygen saturation of 88%, assuming it was a good waveform. <coughs> But the question is, did she benefit from detection of that abnormality? And I will suggest no, based on this brief uh, evidence interlude. We know that hospitalization for bronchiolitis has been increasing since 1980, a period of time corresponding with increased use of continuous pulse oximetry. Despite putting more children in the hospital for bronchiolitis, mortality from this condition hasn't changed over the same period of time. But perhaps the evidence uh, most suggestive of overdiagnosis in this case comes from a randomized trial of previously healthy infants with bronchiolitis who had oxygen saturations greater than 90% who were randomized to have their pulse oximeter reading um, the correct value displayed in triage versus having an altered value three percentage points higher displayed in triage. 
that's not really a um, too, too large a difference. It's probably within the error, measurement error of the machine. Yet, patients who had their pulse oximetry values altered up to a maximum of three percentage points were less likely to be hospitalized. And so what I'm suggesting is that increased diagnosis of hypoxemia among non-critically ill patients with bronchiolitis isn't benefiting them and may be resulting in harm through increased medicalization. Fourth uh, vignette, a two-year-old boy has been tugging at his right ear for the last week. Review of systems is otherwise negative. On exam, the boy's right ear is red, but there is no evidence of a middle ear effusion. He has prescribed a course of amoxicillin. Has this patient been overdiagnosed? Yes, excellent. I agree, this is probably misdiagnosis as written. The patient didn't really have a middle ear effusion, so it doesn't really meet diagnostic criteria for otitis media. However, let's say that he did have a middle ear effusion, fever, otalgia, and let's say that you know this is a bacterial otitis media. Um, in that case, the diagnosis would be correct, and the question becomes, does he benefit from diagnosis and subsequent treatment? Uh, we know that there are trials showing that uh, duration of symptoms for otitis media are decreased with treatment. However, we also know that the vast majority of bacterial otitis media is self-limited, and there are harms to early exposure to antibiotic therapy for young children in terms of how it affects the microbiome. There might be an increased risk for certain autoimmune conditions and obesity. So I think you could, you know, when you're weighing the harms and benefits here, you could try to make an argument for overdiagnosis, but it's not an example that we've talked about in the past. And this is the last vignette. A three-month-old, well-appearing girl has been gaining weight appropriately, but her parents are distressed by her frequent spitting up. She's diagnosed with gastroesophageal reflux and prescribed an H2 blocker. How many think that she has been overdiagnosed? A lot of people. Great. I agree. I think this is probably an example of overdiagnosis and overtreatment of gastroesophageal reflux. This is physiologic in this age group. 50% of infants spit up two or more times a day. Treatment hasn't been shown to be beneficial and may result in harm through increased risk of future respiratory illness. <clears throat> so now that we have a shared understanding of how overdiagnosis is defined, let's talk about how we might measure, uh, measure it scientifically. And there's three main methods that have been used in adult populations. The first is to randomize patients to receive a test and therefore a diagnosis versus not get the test and then go undiagnosed, comparing future outcomes between those two populations. The second is missed diagnosis but no harm. This is akin to a natural experiment in which diagnoses are made after an individual has overcome an abnormality or remained completely asymptomatic over their lifetime, despite the absence of detection and intervention for the abnormality. And third, increasing incidence in a, a particular disease accompanied by an unchanging rate of outcomes that are important to a patient, oftentimes mortality. We're going to go through one example of each of these methodologies. Overdiagnosis of breast cancer through screen mammography has been demonstrated through a randomized trial. 90,000 women aged 40 to 59 years old were randomized to receive either screening mammography or not, as well as routine care in both uh, groups. And after 25 years of follow-up, both breast cancer specific and all-cause mortality were not different between the two groups. Effectively, women who were randomized to have this diagnosis made more often did not benefit in the form of decreased mortality. 
The authors estimated that for every 424 women who were exposed to screening mammography, one was overdiagnosed with breast cancer. 22% of screen-detected breast cancers were considered overdiagnosed. Prostate cancer overdiagnosis by PSA screening has also been shown with randomized trials, but it was first hypothesized through the second methodology, delayed or misdiagnosis without patient harm. This is autopsy data of men who died from other causes, looking at the percentage of the time that prostate cancer was found on autopsy. It turns out that for men in their 30s, for example, if you cut their prostate into small enough pieces and look at it under a microscope, 30% have prostate cancer. And that number only increases with age to the point that 80% of men in their 70s will have prostate cancer if you look for it hard enough. So the point is, uh, there's a vast reservoir of prostate cancer out there that could be detected, but in the overwhelming majority of cases doesn't need to be. Only 3% of men in this country die from prostate cancer each year. Um, but if we detect more prostate cancer through screening, these men are more likely to uh, be harmed um, through surgery and being told that they have cancer. Pulmonary emboli represent the, uh, an example of the third methodology, increasing uh, incidence of a disease accompanied by an unchanging rate of an outcome important to patients. Here we see that um, incidence, total incidence and um, incidence of PE as a primary diagnosis, shown in turquoise and the dotted red respectively, um, increased after introduction of multi-detector row CT pulmonary angiography in the late 90s. Yet mortality from PE remained unchanged. If these patients were benefiting from this extra detection of PE, we would expect a concomitant decrease in their mortality. Instead, um, it's likely that these extra PEs are smaller, less cl clinically significant, and less likely to cause these patients harm, <coughs> therefore most likely representing overdiagnosis. So what is driving overdiagnosis? At the physician level, I think there's unawareness that this is a problem. The possibility that a correct diagnosis could be anything but beneficial runs completely counter to all of our training and all of our assumptions. Discomfort with uncertainty. We um, are troubled by not having answers, and we respond to that with testing. Systemic incentives. Uh, Fee-for-service, supply-sensitive care, something I think well-known to everyone here, but it's the notion that uh, excess capacity of hospital beds and imaging modalities leads to medical utilization, thereby uncovering more abnormalities. And quality measures almost always focus on problems of underuse as opposed to overuse and overdiagnosis. Industry interests contribute to overdiagnosis by lobbying for widened diagnostic boundaries and using the media to create demand for diagnosis, both of which create more patients and more profit. One example is that five of the nine 2012 ADHD guideline panel members had ties to manufacturers of ADHD medications. And perhaps unsurprisingly, they elected to expand the definition of uh, ADHD. It used to be that children had to be between 6 and 12 years old. They expanded it to 4 to 18 years old. And psychological factors, like the technological imperative. If we have the technology, why wouldn't we use it? Multi-detector row CT pulmonary angiography was a great example in uh, the late 90s, but technology has only intensified since then, with um, genetic screening perhaps representing the ultimate overdiagnosis frontier, and an unquestioning belief in screening. We think that people who 
don't get regular checkups and don't get screened are irresponsible. The notion that early detection of diagnosis is always beneficial has become part of our societal fabric. <coughs> Drivers of overdiagnosis can be subtle. This is uh, children and adults with ADHD. It's a nonprofit 5013C organization dedicated to um, advocacy, education, and support of patients with ADHD. Importantly, from my perspective, a large proportion of their funding comes from four pharmaceutical companies who manufacture ADHD medications who stand to benefit from increased awareness but also increased diagnosis and treatment of this condition. Fortunately, overdiagnosis has uh, gained some traction in recent years. There's a Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference that's held every year. The next one will be in Barcelona in 2016. And um, your own overdiagnosis triumvirate of Gil Welch, Lisa Schwartz, and Steve Woloshin wrote this great book, Overdiagnosed, Making People Sick in the Pursuit of Health. The BMJ has devoted entire issues to problems of overuse, including overdiagnosis. But what remains largely unexplored is the possibility that overdiagnosis is affecting children. The only proven example of pediatric overdiagnosis is screening for neuroblastoma. This is a German cluster randomized trial in which parents of 12-month-old children were offered screening for neuroblastoma or not, depending on the German state in which they resided. The authors found that more neuroblastoma was detected in the screened group compared to the control group, largely driven by stage one neuroblastomas. So on the surface, that appears encouraging. We're finding more early stage cancer. But the question is, are patients benefiting from detection of that abnormality? It turns out that mortality was completely unchanged between the screened group and the unscreened group, which I think can be hard for us to wrap our, our mind around. How could finding more early stage cancer not benefit children? But it turns out that the majority of screen detected neuroblastomas actually regress spontaneously, and finding them will only, only result in harm to children because we feel compelled to intervene on them. Um, these are 14 additional examples that were hypothesized um, by my colleagues and I in a recent paper. We prioritized this list based on the prevalence of the underlying condition and the possible prevalence of overdiagnosis within that condition, the harms that we expected could occur, and the quality of the evidence underlying the possibility of overdiagnosis in each case. Um, I do want to emphasize that with None of these are proven, like neuroblastoma. None of them are demonstrated by randomized trials, but in each case there is some evidence to suggest risk of overdiagnosis. We're going to go through a couple of those examples in detail. We're going to focus on thinking about what the potential benefits are, the potential harms, <laughs> to arrive at some notion of net benefit, which has to be present in order to avoid overdiagnosis. The first example is infant aspiration detected by swallow study. The potential benefit is reduced pneumonia. When we find swallowing abnormalities on swallow studies, we intervene to reduce the passage of oral contents into the lungs, hoping that the infant's future risk of aspiration pneumonia will be reduced. But what are the harms potentially here? We're altering feeding. That's a fundamental interaction between a child and their parent. And for some disabled children, this is one of their few pleasurable and normalizing activities. Swallow studies are also a source of radiation. Many of these infants receive multiple swallow studies in the first few years of life. You're hitting the radiosensitive thyroid, and they have the rest of their lives to realize any increased risk of cancer. 
We looked at the trend of swallow study testing at our children's hospital since 1995, with swallow studies per 1,000 admissions plotted along the vertical axis, and found that testing had dramatically increased. And started asking ourselves, is this a good thing or a bad thing? This is more data from the Intermountain Healthcare System in Utah. We examined the association between two common swallowing interventions and future risk of respiratory illness, stratified according to the infant's most recent swallow study result on the left side of this table. With the exception of silent oral pharyngeal aspiration, neither thickening nor nasal tube feeds were associated with a decreased risk of future respiratory illness compared to patients that had no intervention. And if you expand your search to the published literature, the link between swallowing abnormalities and future risk of respiratory illness is fairly unproven. There are no studies showing that any of the common swallowing interventions that we do for these infants truly reduces their future risk of respiratory illness. I think the harms that are most obvious to us as providers are the physical harms. In this case, maybe the radiation from the swallow study. But it's important to think about uh, the more subtle harms, and one of them is how diagnoses affect families and their interaction with their child. These are quotes from parents of children who had uh, feeding diversion via tube. It is really difficult. You are feeding all the time. He is attached, and you cannot pick him up whenever you want to go. You get sarcastic looks. They see you. You are walking with this tube, hanging around your child all the time. I'm constantly giving her medication, changing the feed. Like, it's a lot of work during the night, so it's really difficult for her sometimes and us. You can't sleep because of that. We constantly have to watch the tube to see if it is blocked, broken, leaked, and are constantly going to the hospital. So the question in my mind is, should we really be subjecting families to this reality if we're not really sure that patients are benefiting from diagnosis and intervention. Our second example is obstructive sleep apnea. The potential benefit from detection of this abnormality is improved sleep, leading to improved attention and behavior. Brett Favre apparently says that his CPAP makes him feel like a man. <laughs> the most significant potential harm is that OSA is an increasing indication for tonsil and adenoidectomy surgery, uh, the, which can, uh, confers a known risk of um, bleeding, pain, and postoperative feeding issues. This is a picture of Jahi McMath. She's a uh, young girl who underwent tonsil and adenoidectomy surgery for OSA and tragically suffered the rare complication of severe postoperative bleeding and brain death. Um, and, I, you know, I, I draw attention to this because it is really hard to compare the benefits to the harms given that they have such different frequencies of occurrence and magnitude of severity. But I think we can agree that the evidence should leave us confident that these outcomes are relatively common if they are to outweigh the potential rare but severe harms. This is outcome data from a randomized trial in which patients with OSA were randomized to have early tonsil and adenoidectomy or watchful waiting. They found no difference in their primary outcome highlighted in yellow, a neuropsychological assessment of attention and executive function. They did find some differences in their secondary outcomes, but overall I think it's unclear if TNA improves um, attention and executive function in the setting of OSA. More data from the same study, looking at normalization of sleep study findings uh, over time, 
comparing the group, uh, the watchful waiting group in the light blue to the early TNA group in the dark blue, broken down into uh, various subgroups. If you combine the subgroups, it turns out that 50, almost 50% of those randomized to watchful waiting had complete normalization of their sleep study findings within seven months of enrollment. So this condition can get better on its own without surgical intervention. And third, this is data from Olmstead County, Minnesota, examining the trend in indications for uh, TNA over time, with blue representing infectious, yellow obstructive, and orange representing uh, a mixed indication. You can see that the indication of obstruction increased from about 12% in 1970 all the way to uh, around seven, over 70% in 2005. So what I'm suggesting here is that OSA is an often self-limited condition to which an intervention of unclear benefit but definite potential harm is increasingly applied. Our third example is hyperbilirubinemia. The potential benefit is prevention of cronicteris. Potential harms include disrupted breastfeeding and bonding and an association with malignancy. Look, thinking about the potential benefits first, this is data from California, the Kaiser system, um, where they looked at the incidence of cronicteris over time and found that incidence hadn't changed between 1988 and 1997, despite increased testing and treatment for this condition. And from the same study, uh, death from cronicteris had not changed between 1979 and 2006, again, despite the fact that we are more vigilant about making this diagnosis and providing treatment for it. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force stance on this particular issue is that there's inadequate evidence that treating elevated bilirubin levels in term or near-term infants to prevent severe hyperbilirubinemia results in the prevention of chronic bilirubin encephalopathy or cronicteris. And further, the evidence is insufficient to recommend screening infants for hyperbilirubinemia to prevent cronicteris. And so what are the possible harms of making this diagnosis? This is a prospective study comparing uh, mothers of infants who had hyperbilirubinemia diagnosed to mothers of infants who did not have hyperbilirubinemia diagnosed. The authors found that for those mothers whose child had the diagnosis, they were less likely to be breastfeeding them at one month of age compared to mothers who did not receive the diagnosis. One explanation for that association is something that I think all the pediatricians will think about immediately. Treatment of hyperbilirubinemia often requires separation of mother and child to deliver phototherapy, oftentimes in the first few days of life, which we know is a critical time to establishing successful breastfeeding. Further troubling, though, is the association between phototherapy and leukemia. This is a um, population-based case control study examining the association between childhood leukemia and certain birth and maternal uh, factors, including jaundice and whether or not they received phototherapy. The authors found that uh, exposure to phototherapy was associated with an increased future risk of leukemia. Now, this is only an association. We don't actually know, obviously, that phototherapy directly causes uh, leukemia, but given the unclear benefit to making this diagnosis and treating it, and the extreme rarity of cronicteris, I think this association at least warrants our attention. 
Overdiagnosis is harmful. If a patient is unlikely to receive benefit from detection of an abnormality, then any subsequent interaction they have with the healthcare system becomes a potential source of harm. Starting with exposure to treatments and their side effects. For neuroblastoma, it's surgical resection, which carries a, a non-trivial risk of mortality. It's about 2% in published literature. Overdiagnosis causes increased medical utilization. We spend upwards of a billion dollars a year to treat hypoxemic bronchiolitis and hyperbilirubinemia in this country. Because those patients are receiving correct diagnoses, those figures are not part of anyone's waste calculations, but perhaps some portion of that billion dollars should be. Opportunity cost. What else could these patients and their families be doing with their time? Were they not worried about unnecessarily diagnosed conditions? Were they not uh, going to follow-up appointments and getting prescriptions filled for diagnoses that did not need to be made? To whom else could providers focus attention and resources? And decreased quality of life, one important contributor of which is something called the vulnerable child syndrome. First described in 1964, this is a uniquely pediatric harm that can occur for any diagnosis. Vulnerable child syndrome is parental belief in their child's vulnerability after illness despite full recovery. One particular uh, poignant example is this study of uh, Seattle Middle School uh, students in which the nurses uh, reported being told by parents that their child had a heart problem. The investigators tracked down all those kids, gave them a physical exam, interviewed their parents, reviewed their medical records, and determined that 81% did not have heart disease present at the time of the study. But, very importantly, a large proportion of them were being restricted in some way by their parents. Disabling restrictions were cases in which children were incapacitated in their daily living. They couldn't go to school, they couldn't do physical and social activities. Partial referred to um, children who couldn't do maybe just one activity like swimming, um, or cases where parents said that they watched them very closely for signs of overexertion. And psychologic restriction were situations in which parents expressed worry that there was something wrong with their child, or acknowledged that they would have treated them differently had they not had a heart problem. Now, I, I, I point this out because, um, you know, I, I want to suggest that just simply telling parents that their child has a diagnosis, even if it's trivial to us, like an innocent heart murmur, can result in long-term harm to children. So what can we do to mitigate this problem? I think it starts with awareness. Um, and one suggestion is to improve how we communicate with families and patients such that they understand the long-term implications of a diagnosis, not just the short-term. For example, consider a neurologically impaired child who's orally fed and has had frequent respiratory tract infections over the last six to 12 months, and let's say they present today with uh, signs of aspiration on a chest X-ray. A decently thorough discussion between provider and parent would involve discussion of what aspiration is, how it's deleterious to the lungs, um, the fact that their child is particularly high risk, and the fact that there is a test that can be quickly done to determine if they are aspirating. But I think oftentimes that's where the conversation stops. What if we take it one step further and tell these parents that if we find your child is aspirating, 
we will recommend that you change how you feed them. That may involve complete cessation of oral feeding, that may involve surgery, but only when parents understand the long-term uh, ramifications of a diagnosis can they decide if they want their child exposed to testing. From a medical education standpoint, let's engender greater comfort with uncertainty in young learners. One suggestion would be to alter morbidity and mortality conferences. Historically, they focus on errors of omission. But what if we added to that discussing cases in which patients are harmed by too much medicine, too much testing, uh, the identification of di diagnoses where patients receive more harm than benefit? And what about pursuing a stepped diagnostic approach, particularly for patients who are not critically ill? Why not start with a period of watchful waiting, and only if they don't get better, pursue limited testing um, from which patients are more likely to experience benefit. Diagnostic research tends to focus on making sure that testing identifies the correct condition, but let's add to that asking if patients are benefiting from detection of the condition. And we need to remove conflict of interest from expert panels that define diagnoses and make recommendations about testing. To summarize, children can be harmed by accurate diagnoses. And when considering a workup, rather than asking, will this test find an abnormality, let's start asking, is the child likely to experience more benefit than harm as a result of this test? Thank you all very much. Uh, I'd love to, again, hear your questions, critiques, thoughts. I appreciate your time. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I was just interested in the, um, the question of skull fractures and small bleeds. Because um, I do feel like we see a lot of kids that come in, I'm in intensive care, come in, get absorbed overnight, go home, and they never have anything. Um, but then it's so hard to answer that question about that one really small percentage of bleeds that do increase, and then they herniate up. Always yes. Really because, because the outcome is so severe. Yes. So I, I never really know what to do that because the vast, vast majority come in, probably don't even need a CT in the first place, right? And now we've like tripled their chances of, which are very, very microscopic, but still yeah. tripled their chance of having a brain tumor when they're 30. So I think that is a fantastic example. And um, Alan Schroeder and I are actually designing a study to try to uh, demonstrate if skull fractures and small head bleeds have been overdiagnosed. We know that um, with the Image Gently campaign and with PCARN um, recommendations about using CT, that CT use for head imaging has been decreasing over the last 10 years or so. Um, and so what we'd like to do is look at the rate of skull fractures and small head bleeds as CTs have decreased and see if detection has decreased for those abnormalities. And then also, kind of in a classic overdiagnosis fashion, compare the rate of those diagnoses to the outcome that's important to the patients. In this case, mortality, neurosurgical intervention, all those things, to try to ascertain if, um, in the past, we had been overdiagnosing skull fractures and small head bleeds. Um, so I completely agree, and hopefully we can shed some light on that.
And there's certainly harm, like you, as you pointed out, to finding a skull fracture or a small head bleed. Oftentimes, depending on the center, those kids will put, be put in the PICU um, when in reality they probably didn't even need to be hospitalized at all. Um, they might get a repeat head CT or, you know, even more than two. Um, so, uh, and not to mention, I think there's risk for vulnerable child in that situation too. You're telling a parent that their child has a fracture in their skull or a bleed in their brain. You know, how is that going to affect how they treat their child going forward? Are they going to keep them out of certain activities? Uh, so I think um, the potential for harm is, is potentially very well, significant. That some of the surgical physicians are recommending they don't go back to school for some extraordinary amount of yeah. time. <laughs> so. Um, yes. Um, I, I'm one of the primary care docs, so I feel like you're speaking to us in primary care a lot because we have to balance that risk of uh, reassuring that a family is going to be okay with should we do another test or should we send you to a specialist. I'm wondering, as you look at overdiagnosis over time, um, I'm going back through my career, and I remember, and Dr. Hoffer can probably corroborate my story, that back in the olden days, in the mid-1990s when we were in training, Dr. Bergman used to walk around the unit and take the pulse oxes off of the kids with bronchiolitis and say, in much more colorful language than I'm going to use, look at the child and tell me what they're doing. Um, so you I still do that, Kathy. You still do that? <laughs> you probably do it in more colorful language, language than me too. Language. Um, to Dr. Paradise's work about tympanostomy tubes and effusions and hearing loss. I mean, those were examples of overdiagnosis or overtreatment, you know, 20 years ago. I'm wondering how much we need to do as a profession and as a society to educate the public about what we're talking about. Um, you know, again, in my career, I feel like I don't have to convince families not to have antibiotics as much for an otitis media. I have not had been asked to provide codeine for cough suppressant in probably 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, so some of that is a societal shift about what we expect when our families come in, what we expect. So I'm wondering how we as a profession can educate families more about the overdiagnosis and overtreatment. I think you're 100% right. I think that... I think the public tends to care less about the specific evidence um, for overdiagnosis, and I think stories can be really powerful, more than statistics in a lot of cases. Um, so getting, you know, Jaheim McMath, I think getting that story out there, I know that was publicized for different reasons, but patients like her who received a diagnosis that they probably didn't need to receive and suffered severe harm. Um, and, but I think overdiagnosis is a little bit, more difficult than some of those other examples because it is difficult to understand it, even for medical providers. You know, this definition that I'm using is honestly a little bit different than how it's historically been defined. And even medical providers, it's really hard for us to fathom that we could correctly identify an abnormality that results in more harm to a patient. So conveying that to the public um, I think will be challenging. Breast cancer is a great example. So um, <clears throat> the reality is that, you know, I know this is controversial to say, but there's a lot of women out there who um, are survivors of breast cancer who probably were overdiagnosed. And their story is told over and over again that um, their life was saved by early detection of cancer. And unfortunately, I think that drowns out the story of women who um, 
you know, we're, we're, drowns out the, the alternative argument that maybe they didn't need to be diagnosed and that they were harmed from it. And it's, I think it's, I think the overdiagnosis public uh, education campaign is very difficult, but certainly something we need to put a lot of work into. Um, yes, sir. Been around a while, and I'm interested in in the discussion of a TNA. In that we seem to keep taking out tonsils and adenoids. We just change the diagnosis. We took out adenoids and tonsils because of recurrent earaches, and then yeah. we took out tonsils because some people felt it prevented it, it cured bedwetting, and then uh, and then we went on to recurrent strep throat. And, and, but the number of tonsillectomies continues to be the same. We just change the, change right. the diagnosis. So I think you're right. Wait, uh, my question. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, a lot of the work to um, demonstrate variation in care for tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy started here, and I think you all are very aware of the um, misuse, overuse of that intervention here. I don't. I, I think I don't know. You know how to answer your question. I think that it's a I think that a lot of the, one of the drivers probably is that it's an important procedure to a medical specialty, and um, <laughs> it's hard hard to take that away, frankly. Well, the studies here have shown that the more otolaryngologists you have, the more tonsils and adenoids you take out. Yeah. Right. Supply-sensitive care, yeah. Uh, yes, sir. So, as a pediatric oncologist, um, I, I'd like to <coughs> suggest that, in fact, your example of neuroblastoma is an example of how it should be done. Um, because <clears throat> initially, back in the 70s and early 80s, the Japanese were screening, started screening for neuroblastoma and claimed that by screening we might reduce mortality. A study was then done in newborns between Canada and the United States, with Canada being screened and the U.S. centers not, which showed that, in fact, when you screen newborns, you double the rate of neuroblastoma that don't change the mortality. And then people said, well, it's the high-risk neuroblastoma that occurs at a later age. That's really the problem. You should screen for that. So mm -hmm. these studies were done in Germany, looking at one-year-olds. And in fact, it wasn't Unlike prostate screening and, and mammographies, it wasn't instituted worldwide. Mm -hmm. It was studied mm -hmm. as this is an idea. It might work. We study yeah. it in a limited way. Right. We find out it doesn't work, and it's not broadly instituted. So, yes, that you know that is an overdiagnosis, but it was really um, done. I think the way it should have been done. Sure. Yeah. yeah as opposed to screening everyone at the age of twelve for hypercholesterolemia, for instance. Well, you don't know what. What Our academy recommends yeah. nine to eleven, and then again as a teenager. <laughs> I think I think that's a fantastic point. I completely agree. Yes. So I'm thinking a lot about newborn jaundice. Uh, I have a lot of the same slides on jaundice that you have in my talk on, on jaundice, and uh, thinking about the things that we should change to try to reduce the rates of phototherapy that are clearly doing no good, mm -hmm. clearly costing a lot, and clearly causing harm. Mm -hmm. Have you had a few things that you think you could do based on what you've looked at so far? What would those things be? I have my list of three things that I would change about the <laughs> sure. but I'm curious to hear your perspective. Uh, so 
I guess I would start by raising the threshold at which phototherapy is instituted. There's a lot of, so Tom Newman is the expert on this, and he has at least one study showing that when they review cases of cornicterus, the vast majority have billies that are 40, 45, 50, you know, and so the fact that we're treating billies of 18 or 20 is, I think, a little bit unnecessary. I think you could also do more to risk stratify which infants you treat um, using things like G6PD, and again, G6PD is highly associated with kernicterus. Um, and, and I've heard that they're, re they're revising the guidelines now. I don't know what they're going to do and when those are going to come out, but those would be my thoughts. They are. Allison's on the Oh, great. <laughs> great. So, yeah. What else, what else are you thinking of? raising the threshold. That's my number two. The first one is getting rid of the little box below that says you have the option to treat the baby two to three points below the recommended threshold. To me, that's like we can try a bronchodilator. I think you can. Uh, you have the okay. option to, to not treat a, a two to three points above. above. That might be better. Or we can move. There's very good evidence we can move the lines up. So those two things. And my third one is actually universal screening. I hmm. might do risk-based screening on leaving the newborn nursery. So only if you're under 38 weeks or you're mm -hmm. TAT positive or mm -hmm. you're from a high-risk ethnic group or something like mm -hmm. that. And the, the vast majority of babies probably shouldn't get a bilirubin mm -hmm. measured at all. Yeah. They don't look down this when they leave the nurseries. Not cost-effective, by the way. Uh, um. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, ma'am. You have not discussed a lot electronic medical records and the new coding uh, that will be coming out shortly. Do you think that in some subtle way, uh, having more diagnostic codes and electric systems and insurance companies are actually driving us to make more diagnosis, or is that just a sidebar? Hmm. Um, I don't. I don't know to be honest. Um, you should file that away as a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it, I, I, I think ICD-10 is, um, is a nefarious plot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Certainly if you have more diagnostic options, I, I, I can imagine how that could lead to overdiagnosis. Yeah. But, but the insurance companies don't want you to diagnose. They don't want to pay you anything. They just want to confuse you, so you can't be too Yeah. <laughs> um, let me go to this side. Yes. Um, my question is when you were talking about heart murmurs, I'm a general pediatrician yes. as well. And um, so I always tell parents when I hear them because my concern is they could go to see someone else or they could go to an emergency yep. room or an urgent care and someone would say, oh my gosh, there's a heart murmur. And then the parents are like <clears throat> super worried about that. So I always let them know, but I guess, is there an optimal way for me to do that so that they're, like has that been studied of the way to make them not then feel vulnerable? I always am really mm -hmm. careful of them telling them when it goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, and I'm also, you know, really have a long discussion about how it's normal, what percentage of kids I hear heart murmurs in, and then right. it's normal physiologic, it's like the normal way their body is working. Right. But I guess, like, is, has there been a, a study of, well, so I don't make them feel vulnerable? I mean, you're in a tough spot, right? Because, if, like you're saying, if you don't tell them that they have a murmur, and they see one of your colleagues who tells them they do, then maybe the, the family loses faith in you, right? Um, but I can tell you that that study that I cited, they did find that the parents who were not restricting their children were more likely to remember the physician telling them that the condition would go away on its own. 
Um, so I think by providing that education, you're reducing their risk of vulnerable child syndrome. Um, but I guess from my standpoint, if it is truly an innocent heart murmur, it's really, it's physiologic, it's, it's normal, right? And, and so why do we feel compelled to mention it? I think it's, it's because we like to document those kinds of things on the physical exam, and, and I, don't, I don't think it serves the, the patient much benefit. So personally, I'd probably lean toward not mentioning it, but if you are, I think the education you're providing is terrific. So. Yes, Dr. Goodman. Sorry, that was really a great talk, and I have to say it's, you know, it's painful. Um, I don't have quite those advantage, but, you know, but, but I'm getting close to, to that sort of uh, duration of, of, of observation of how much overdiagnosis seems to have increased over the last few decades. Do you have any thought about whether clinical practice guidelines themselves are doing more harm than good in terms of overdiagnosis. I mean, the easy, it's, it's, it's easy. One example is very easy, and it's you know, picking on, on our surgical colleagues. So clinical practice guidelines uh, in otolaryngology um, for um, treatment of, well, for treatment of conditions leading that might lead to TNAs. Mm -hmm. um, I'll put it that way right. as an example. But also there, you know, there are guidelines for middle ear disease is another example that I think really tends to increase and accelerate mm -hmm. overdiagnosis. Mm -hmm. but, in, but looking at ourselves in pediatrics, on the, on the medical side, you know, where do you think, you know, what do you think about, how are we doing with clinical practice guidelines? I mean, are we making things worse or are we, are we making things better? Um, I, I think that it depends on the guideline. Uh, so, like the, the uh, bronchiolitis guidelines, for example, I believe do um, encourage reduced use of continuous pulse oximetry. Is that right, Sean? So, they encourage reduced use of everything. Yeah. But, but specifically, pulse oximetry, a source of overdiagnosis. Um, you know, the PCARN head imaging guidelines uh, encourage reduced use of CT scans for children presenting with TBI. So anytime that a guideline um, is appropriately encouraging reduced use of testing, then I think they're helping us to um, mitigate the problem of overdiagnosis. But, um, you know, and I haven't done a thorough review of all the guidelines in pediatrics, but my bias would be that, yeah, there, there probably are more guidelines um, encouraging testing leading to overdiagnosis than those that are decreasing it like the ones that I cited. So I think it's probably a, uh, a, a driver for overdiagnosis, yeah. Yes, sir. Different take on, on um, your talk. Um, and let me throw out some thoughts on that. Um, I think that uh, overdiagnosis can really be called underdiagnosis. It's based on, by your definition, the outcome, the treatments and the outcomes. And it seems to me that because one gets a bad outcome or uh, no uh, improved outcome, that that doesn't change the fact that you have a diagnosis and you yourself used abnormality. I think that we don't know how to parse out a lot of uh, those abnormalities. 
you brought up uh, reflux. We don't know what small percentage of those refluxes really should be treated, and even when we do know, we don't know the correct treatment. Mm -hmm. But it's only with time and treatment that, and the interventions that we find out none of them work. But that doesn't mean it's overdiagnosis. We don't know how to parse out which ones the body can take care of mm -hmm. or time will take care of mm -hmm. associated with the body or where we have to intervene. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's really the inability to parse out the diagnoses. What breast lesions need to be picked up now and put in the category, uh, a subcategory, those breast lesions that need to be treated now with current therapy, knowing the costs and benefits of the therapy. So I, I actually agree with you. Um, I, I think that one of the hardest parts about overdiagnosis is that, and I'm going to call it overdiagnosis, but is that we can't, we don't know ahead of time which patients are going to benefit and which are going to be harmed. And, and so I agree with you that we need to move forward in trying to figure out which parts of a population are most likely to benefit from a diagnosis. But I think I would argue that before we expose the entire population or a large segment of the population to testing and diagnosis, we need to make sure that as a population, the benefits outweigh the harms. And only once we with you know, more advanced testing once we can determine which prostate cancers on screening you know, using various um, you know, markers, once we know for sure that we can identify a population that um, will experience more benefit than harm, only then should we be exposing everyone else to that technology. Um, but I think, I think too often we get excited by technology and, um, and we unleash it upon the population without really knowing if detection of the abnormalities that it reveals is benefiting people. I think it's 9 o'clock, um, and uh, I want to leave you with an author quote. That, uh, the author said, remember that the, the first duty of the physician is to educate the masses, not to take medicine. <laughs> and thank you, Eric, so much.